Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today I'm talking to John Housecoat, and when I first met John, he was at WL Gore and Associates, who make high-performance Gore-Tex fabrics. But John left Gore at the back end of last year, after 22 years, and now he's on a mission to work with other organisations to try and help them really unpick what it is that drives employee engagement. So if there's anybody out there who needs some help, then John is more than willing to help you review your employee engagement program and give you a critical eye from the success that they had when they entered the Best Companies Awards program. They won it in 2004, the first year that they entered it, and then they won it the next four years. And still, they find themselves in the top 10. This is an organization with about 1% staff turnover. These guys know what it takes to build an amazing business and to keep their workforce engaged. Some of the things we talk about are servant leadership. That comes obviously comes through from the conversation I have with John. What it is to have no job titles, the power of small teams, and some of the things that they had done in the past that make core values real and not just the sort of purpose and values piece that some organizations will do. Go through that exercise, pin them on the wall and think job done. But how do you turn core values and behaviors into something that lives and breathes in the organization every day. It's a difficult thing to do, but something that definitely they've cracked at gore. So I hope you enjoy the conversation I have had with John. I enjoyed it immensely. Thanks for listening. So I'm uh, John Housco. Uh, I'm a proud Cornishman, originated from the Southwest, but now live in Scotland. I am uh, an engineer by background, uh, electrical and electronic engineering from Loughborough University, which I hated at the time. Um, joined Kodak because I was interested in photography and my mother sent a letter to them, unbeknown to me, and uh, they gave me my first job, really, and discovered that engineering could be quite fun in the right place with the right people. I spent four and a half years with Kodak in London, in Harrow, making X-Colour paper and graphic arts films. And then my wife, Scottish, I met her at Kodak and we wanted to move north. Uh, we moved to Cumbria. I worked with Eastman Chemical for four and a half years making bottled polymer. And unbeknown to me, uh, when I was trying to get to Scotland, an engineer in W.L. Gore and Associates kept my CV for four years and they reached out and found me in Cumbria just at the time when I was ripe for leaving that company because of the situations that had happened there. And I joined Gore. So I spent 22 years with Gore um, in various roles, from joining as a process engineer, an uh, engineering leader, and then taking over plant leadership for the fabrics plant supplying consumer products to uh, Europe primarily, like the Berghaus and Nerona and other big uh, European companies. 
and then gradually moved into a product specialist role, then joined IT, and then worked for the last, I guess, four and a half years on big transformational projects at an enterprise level, mostly in supply chain. Okay, that is a long and varied career. What are you hoping to do next? So I, I guess my experience in Gore around the great places to work and what a true cultural environment is. And if you've got a company that's got some clear values and beliefs and that manifests itself into clear values and goals, right down to policy and practice, you know, I would say my, my experience in, in Gore of how that's done and how well that can be done is what I'd like to share with more companies and find ways of doing that and improving their workplaces by getting that alignment because you know people don't often consider that you know the core values uh, that they might have had a session with they might have them printed up on the wall but do they manifest themselves in real day-to-day activities and conversations in the workplace because if they don't then they're not really the values and the behavior and and the setting the scene in the business that's required in my opinion what are the core values at Gore? Gore has got a long established history with culture right from its start in 58 with Bill Gore setting up uh, a company and you know, one of the core values is joint ownership and, and they would call it all in the same boat as one of their core beliefs and that manifests itself for instance in associate ownership programs so you get a share of the company so it's not a fully employed owned, owned company like a John Lewis Trust is it's a family owned business but everyone working in it has some shares and that comes from a core belief of you're all in the same boat, working together, getting some value together from our work within the company. Other things they talk about is they are an independent company, so they're not driven by stock market changes or or demands from shareholders in that. The, the company is the associates and the stakeholders, so they can take a longer-term view on things. And they have this idea of uh, small teams that know and trust each other. So that's an organizational statement and belief. Uh, that challenges them to make sure that however their structure, however the business grows, there's a clear structure of small teams that are knowledgeable and are trusted and empowered to run that part of the business. That's a core framework that's set up uh, within Gore and, and manifests itself right through the organisation. And in terms of small teams, what what does a small team look like? How small is it? So, I, I mean, there's lots of theory out there about team size, right? You, know, you get so big and the communication channels start to break down and there's a lack of trust. So I think those academic theoretical models would say um, anything over 12 is is inefficient. Uh, Gore would try and stick to something like eight to 10 max with a executive team looking after a business or a development project that's looking after a project or an engineering team that's got a specific group of responsibilities. Uh, so there's a knowledgeable team. So however you... Yeah, wherever you are in the organization, there should be a, a cross-functional leadership team of that sort of size that's looking after the business. And they, and they would vary depending on what the scope of the commitment of that team is, for instance. So if it's a business team looking after a European particular business, then there will be a leadership team that owns that business. It will have a business leadership. It would have product specialists. It would have uh, manufacturing support as a team that looks after that piece of the bigger jigsaw puzzle of Gore. Um, so wherever you looked in the organization, there would be a team of that sort of size that owned portions of the business, whether that be, you know, finance at an enterprise level or finance at a local level or leadership of a plant or leadership of a 
engineering group, wherever you looked in the organization, team size would be about that. Does that mean that meetings typically are never more than eight people as well? Because you're pulling together a, a team for a meeting? Yeah, it's a bit like that. It, it depends on what the circumstance, what the meeting is. But um, most team meetings would, would be the team, obviously. That doesn't mean to say that others couldn't participate and would participate, uh, depending on the topic. Uh, but they might come in and go out. So there might be a, a topic where there's 15 or 20 people in the meeting, most of whom are listening in or contributing to that piece of the meeting. But the core executive team, if you like, would remain at that smaller size. And does it have? Does this team size also have implications for the size of the factories that you that you manufacture in? Uh, so God does, yes. God determines uh, a smaller size, again based on tribal knowledge, if you like. Um, human nature and tribal knowledge would state that where once you get above 150 or so, people start to lose contact and emotional contact with each other. Uh, so Bilgo was very strong on that, on size of plants, to be of a size where everybody knew something about the other person. So they knew their name, they knew their you know, situation, they knew their commitment, um, they understood what they were working on, because that then speeds up natural communication. Yeah. I, I just I just remember we, I think you spoke at one of Henry Stewart's conferences, and, I, and that's when I first met you, but I'd seen Gore at the top of the Sunday Times Best Places to Work for a long time. And I just remember you said that there'd been a factory, I think, in a town in Scotland and you'd open another factory in the same town because Gore had this feeling of diseconomies of scale as opposed to most of the literature saying there's economies in scale. And is that because it, although it's manufacturing, you still see it as a, as a people-based business? Well, all businesses are people-based, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, until, yeah. until it's fully artificial intelligence and running robots, then emotions are the things that drive business. And uh, when, when you get to, you know, what, what makes an effective business, then it's about communication. It's about knowledge of your role, where you fit in the, the bigger jigsaw puzzle of the whole role uh, and what you bring to work to contribute to that business. So if that gets too big, you know, if you're in a plant of 6,000 people or something, you really don't know what you contribute in the overall big scale of things. And you don't know who's making the decisions and when they're making the decisions because it's too distant from you. So when you, when you look at a methodology around how do you speed up communication so you don't have to process it, I make it a standing operating procedure of how you communicate. One of the ways you, you can stop having to do that is by keeping the plant small so that people are bumping into each other, you know each other, and sharing information happens organically and naturally, and it doesn't have to be forced. So, you know, people would argue you get a bigger plant, um, you get more, more efficient. I would argue uh, not based on that communication, because the biggest efficiency comes from knowledge and communication and decision making. And it's about decision making that speeds up. And to make a decision, you need to be knowledgeable around the current situation and knowledgeable around the problem and have the right people engaged at the right time to make the choice. That is about scale of personal relationship, trust, engagement with others. Yes. And I think also there's that, there's that sense that if you're in a large plant at the front line and you're being asked to do something stupid that there's a sense of helplessness, if you like. You know, there's, you cannot influence anything. And in a smaller organization with that sort of flatter structure, but even just that 
human span of control, you will know who the factory manager is. You will know who who everybody is. And if, if something is being done that you just think is wrong, particularly in if you've got that shared ownership model, it's like, look, I own some of this business. I'm telling you that this is wrong because I care, which you just see you completely lose when you get when you scale up a business. If you want people to take a widget and go add a widget in and in that sort of soulless, you know, human robotics type of way, then then I can see you might get some efficiency, but you won't get you won't get that feedback from the front line about things that design changes that got made somewhere else impacting delivery. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things Gore talks about a lot is one-to-one communication. So, you know, that scale adds itself to that ability to talk to the person that you need to talk to, and you don't have to go through a hierarchy of people to get that knowledge. An example of that would be if you're running a trial. So you've got a development team developing a new product of some sort, and it's running in production. If there's something difficult happening on the production line, who does the person in, in the line talk to? Well, if you're a very, very big company, there's probably no one to talk to. You just execute what you're told to do, even though you know it's not going to work, right? Whereas if you're in a smaller community, you just get onto the phone to the person, you know them, and you say, look, on the trial paperwork, it's saying I should do this, but we can't do that because of this reason. What do you want me to do? In bigger organizations, they might say, turn it off, it's wrong, it's incorrect, start it again, just do the next thing because they're on to the next piece. Or you could have a conversation with the person, make a choice then and still run the trial and you still get value from it. But that's about relationships and not process. But process is important. But if you've got that size and scale so you know the person, then you can have that one-to-one communication. It speeds up that decision-making. What other things are not typical at Gore from running a business perspective? I remember you told a story about how you ended up running the plant. (laughs) <laughs> that that didn't sound completely ordinary yeah no I, I think that the biggest thing Dom is, is around leaders defined by followership is the way that Gore would talk about that um, so leadership is a gift word you know leadership can't be taken or bought uh, because leadership is defined by followership and followership is a gift given by somebody who follows you so when Gore's working at its best that's how it works in the sense that a leader is defined by their followers and the followers choose who their leader is. Um, you know, one of the proudest moments in my Gore career was around 2004 when we won Best Companies to work for, for the first time. The plan I was engaged with, uh, 70% of people felt they were leaders. Now, in most organizational structures, they will go, that's your worst nightmare. But in Gore structure, that, that's fantastic because that means a large proportion of the team feel they own something and are most knowledgeable about it that they can lead the conversation in that expertise. Um, so when you talk about engagement at work, uh, that's really important because you know they feel that they own something, they contribute to something, they're important to it, and that's true engagement. So when you talk about efficiency, right, and, and truly effective efficiency, most companies try to improve that at a large scale where actually you know it's a a bit like dave brailsford and the minute detail of getting british cycling to where it was you know marginal gains well the biggest marginal gain that's out there is independent knowledgeable decision making that's devolved to the organization at a level where it can operate really really effectively and that whole followership leadership thing really helps that because 
you know, against an, a, a traditional organizational structure of a pyramid with someone being at the top, the person at the top of Gore is only there because of the followership they've got. And the people that they, they interact with are only there because of the followership that they've got. And those people are only there because of the followership that they get. So the pyramid's actually upside down. So the power is with the broad community who are selecting their leaders, who select their leaders, who select the leader. And that's the power base. And so nobody ends up in a position of leadership unless they have the skills that the team they're leading think that they're the best person in the team or today they're the best person for this role. Yeah. And, you know, I've been involved in circumstances where teams come and, you know, I, I think when I joined or when I took over uh, manufacturing leadership of the plant, there was, I think there was two previous manufacturing leaders in the organization, in the room, in the space at the same time, right? Now, in most organizations, that couldn't happen because I don't know whether it's ego or position or what, but most people can't take another commitment in such a small, and we were quite a small team, really, of that scale. You know, it just doesn't happen. But in Gore, that's commonplace, that you just have different commitments. You take different commitments. And there's no ego position or anything associated to it because they're gifted to you and they can be taken away as well or lost or you choose to move on and go somewhere else. Or there's a gap where people feel that you would be the best person for the gap. Absolutely. And I would argue, you know, in um, majority of companies, there's no mechanisms for doing that well. Some big companies might have professionals that are looking for talent around the organization, right? But again, I'll get back to that small team piece of knowledge and trust is, you know, what makes a person? And it's not a black and white piece of paper that's got a CV or a history on it. It's about the engagement and the feeling that they give to other people and the capability they bring that is recognized by other team members. That can't be processed in the sense of documented so you can look in a big organization and say, oh, that's the person for this gap over here. It's more involved than that. It's more emotional. It's more knowledge-based. And also it's impossible to do when you get more than 100 people in one team because people just don't know. Somebody says, should Fred run X? And people go, never met the guy, don't know who he is, couldn't comment. Absolutely. And then surprises happen. Like, why have we got this person that knows nothing about it? And, and the, the mentality of why someone's been given a role, uh, rather than someone gift, being gifted the role, has to be explained. And yeah, you need to do that. In big organizations, even in Gore, you need to do that. I mean, the most surreal example of development and, and people control, if you like, was there's a textile company in southern United States called Millican. Uh, Mr. Millican had this war room and, and I was there for a two-week training course and they took you to the war room and literally it was a very large role, room and it had every single, and it was a very, very big organization. It had every single leader's name in boxes in this hierarchy on the walls. And he used to come in there and he just used to move people, pick them up from one part of the hierarchy and move them to another bit of the hierarchy and do a shuffle. Uh, I don't know how often he did it. He just did the shuffle, right? just to give experience. So he, he was the talent manager of the whole leadership structure for the whole organization. And it was on this war room. That was his live organizational chart that, that managed it. Now that's one way of doing it, right? He, he just said, well, we've got good people. I'll take control and I'll develop certain people and I'll hear from the feedback and I'll move them around to give them the right experience. So we've got 
your leadership for the future. But if you go to those teams and then suddenly this Joe Bloggs turns up from wherever to lead your team, how do you explain that to the team? <laughs> you know, how does the team know? So, so then it becomes like a, an education because the leader knows nothing about that. So how can they lead? They're just going to, yeah, they're the appointed person, but they need to learn. Um, so I would, I would find that very, very strange. But it's, it's a way of doing it, for sure. It certainly that happened to me when my first job out of university was with Marks and Spencer, and I would every six to 12 months get moved from one store to another. And every time I moved stores, I would change departments because it was about giving you the experience of different management teams, different locations in different departments. But it meant that the people that you were managing knew that you knew nothing and you were there for six to 12 months. So the skill you developed was getting them on side quickly. And so that I found a useful skill to have learned. But I know that some of the managers would turn up and the teams would just work to rule or be difficult or, you know, they just say, we only have to put up with this joker for six months and they'll be gone. So let's just, you know, frustrate them at every turn. And, uh, you know, the learning is what I would argue is not real learning in the sense that, you know, you're just seeing what they're doing. It's like being at a lecture <laughs> and you're watching it happen in front of you, but you've not actually done it. So you're not there to make it, you know, in, in a year or 18 months, you can't make a big difference to a team. No. You, you can badly, you can impact them really badly very quickly, but to actually learn and understand and make improvements, you're not doing that. You're basically just learning how work is done in different departments. And so what else, what else do Gore do that most organizations don't? I think the biggest thing for me is that, you know, the alignment of values and beliefs it is a language that's used throughout the organization. Uh, and that's critical. It's seen as a competitive advantage and it's leverage to do that. And, you know, as I say, most companies might go through that purpose, values, piece at a high level and proclaim them to people. But do they actually embed it in the language that's used within the organization and the discussion to all associates involved in the company? Do you have job titles? Good tries to have not have job titles and that gets okay. back to the the argument of um you know that, that example that you gave there is of marks and spencer is um you come in with a job title of manager of this or manager of that yeah but in reality you're turning up as dominic monkhouse when you leave the group won't see you as the manager or the title they'll see you as dominic monkhouse and when they hear your name in the future they will have built this capability in their own head and it's listed to your name, not to the job that you did. So Gore is very strong on, it's about you as an individual and what you bring and what your capability is, not about the role that you're playing. You know, my learning through that and, and reflecting on that, it avoids assumptions and assumptions are very dangerous in any organization. So if you assume because of a title, the person's doing the work that you would assume that title would do, you could be wrong. Maybe they're not doing it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because they're doing it, they're doing their own commitment in the way that they do their own commitment. And if you knew the person, then maybe you'd say, oh, he, he won't be doing that. He would have delegated that or she would have delegated that. So they, uh, that he's not the right person to ask. But if you think about the title and the responsibilities and accountabilities, 
then maybe you would assume that that person would be doing it or not doing it. it you know, that can happen quite clearly around organizations. And, and that's why other companies have to be so regimented from a process point of view, down to a job description, down to work that needs to get done and who's doing the work. They have to do that so rigorously to make sure that everything's covered. Whereas if you if you just have the team and the capability of the team and knowing what the work needs to be done, that's less regimented because it's covered by a broader group of people. And you don't have to force things into boxes, right? Do people set daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly objectives? Yeah, I mean, there's a business to run. <laughs> things need to happen. So there needs to be clarity and smart uh, rules around you know what's happening, why is it happening, what's the priority, who's doing what. But again, back to small teams that know and trust each other and one-to-one communication, that should happen much easier. Me personally, I would, I, would, I would always have three monthly one-to-one meetings with the team, with individuals of the team, look at what they focused on, what they've delivered, what they focused on for the next three months. How could I help deliver what they're focused on for the next three months? And then me as a leader, I would be responsible for making sure all of that added up to the business need that the whole team needed to deliver. Uh, spotting gaps and making sure the gaps were filled one way or another. And I think you do go do something that's not common in terms of pay rises. Well, I mean, they do pay rises. And I mean, the difference <laughs> back to that, you know, belief in the individual piece is that the responsibility or the the review of contribution is done by a group of people, not by the leader or the, the person that's going to see the change in salary. Uh, So the input is from a broader team of people that they've affected who understand their contribution and what they've done, what they've delivered. And that team then determines how well that person has contributed to to the success of the enterprise. I know other companies uh, do similar things around that. It's it's not unique to Gore, but it is unusual. And, And the other, the most important thing for me from an organizational point of view is that yeah, one that's trusting of the team to recognize what's important for the team, what they're trying to deliver and why that's important. So they know that and are being asked to grade that of the, themselves with each other. So there's a level of trust there. But the most powerful thing is that it's not going through a hierarchy of leaders. So it removes that I'm a favorite of the leader, so I'm going to get a pay rise irrespective of what the team think of me. Yeah. So you, you sort of devolve. You devolve a budget down and then that budget then gets allocated to the team members based on contribution? I know there's lots of different ways of doing it. Okay. The, enterprise, the enterprise looks every year at you know, the status of the business and, and what's appropriate. But there's, there's you know, different mechanisms that different teams will, will use to do that based on their circumstance. The goal would, would strive not to use the word budget because it's more important to do what's right. You've got to do that in a managed way, in a, in, a, in a position of knowledge and understanding around the current business situation. But you wouldn't allow budget to prevent you giving someone a pay rise that was right and fair and determined based on what they had contributed. Okay. We can't afford to reward you this year is not a valid, fair comment to make. That's just not fair. <laughs> yeah. If I could, uh, that you know, as you said, in 2004, you won the best companies award in taking gore through that process or being the leader of the plant when when that happened what what did you see as the value in entering sort of third party awards like that 
So what, one thing to be clear, it's not just me or the plant. No, there's two plants and a big sales organization and all of the UK associates contributed to that. So, so I was one, one leader in that space of all associates. Um, so I didn't win it. We won it as a UK company. But why, why is it important? Because you're striving to live the values of the business and be successful in business within Gore. And you're isolated in that sense that you know, you're working in that community and you don't know whether that's good or bad or indifferent and you can be pretty down on yourselves. We could have done better there. We could have done better there. You don't really know unless you do some external benchmarking how you compare to other businesses or how other people in other companies are feeling. So the external benchmark of doing a thing like that gave us two things, in my opinion. One was, you know, best companies had the best statistical measure of true engagement. So their mechanism and process for delivering the results was, was the strongest from a scientific and mathematical point of view around you could believe the results. But the other big piece is that that then compares you to other companies against that strong measure around how well you're doing. I mean, we never expected to win it. The whole of the UK was immensely proud when we did. And the fact that we you know went on and won it four years on the trot was unprecedented, really. My biggest thing about that um, for the country-wise is that, you know, I'd like to think that Gore helped in that period motivate other companies to become better workplaces. And, you know, that's where my passion is for the future is, you know, a set of leaders and directors of boards or whoever have got control really appreciating the difference that a great workplace has, not only on the health of the people they employ, but the wealth of the business because it's a, a double whammy in my view, right? If you've got a great workplace where people are engaged, wanting to come to work, proud to come to work, have a voice to listen to, then the business is going to be stronger for that and the business will be more successful. Did those four years overlap with four years of economic success in the business? It was a big growth term for us in that period, but it was also beset by massive, massive challenges within certain parts of our business, for sure. So, you know, supply chains were hard and difficult. There was a big transition in areas. So the challenges were immense, actually. And the associates, you know, weren't sitting back and putting their feet up going, this is easy money. It wasn't. It was a lot of very, very hard work. Lots of people working lots and lots of hours to, to cover the business that we needed to get done. And we weren't successful in all of those things. You know, there was some very difficult, challenging moments through that at the same time. But again, it's for me, it's, it's about the approach of how you deal with those circumstances. So if you ask me, well, you only win best companies when you're on a, an upward spiral, everything's relaxed, it's all good. I would argue, no, that's not true, because I think the true value of when you're in difficult times, whatever that be, for whatever reason, it's how you deal with those circumstances. And if you've got a great place to work, associates will contribute and help and want to be part of the fix of those challenges and will thoroughly enjoy being a part of that fix. Yeah. Right? They will go, wow, because achievement is amazing. But only if you've got a great workplace where people are being listened to and, and rewarded and sharing in the success. John, there's a couple of thorny subjects that I occasionally pick up with people. One is sales commission. Did the associates involved in sales get paid commission at all? 
So, so I've never been a sales guy. The methodology around payment is uh, set by uh, the enterprise as a whole. Commission would not be seen as the right thing to do because it, it then focuses down on the individual. And if you focus down on the individual, uh, he's losing sight of being part of a team and a bigger goal, right? So that wouldn't fit the methodology of being all in the same boat and all working towards the same thing. Because if you start to, in any business, in my opinion, this is not Gore's opinion, and all of this is my opinion, not Gore's opinion. <laughs> if you start focusing on individuals being the most important, you're a very big risk to your business as a whole. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that is, you know, if you've got a double glazing company and you've got a fantastic sales guy, but you're really struggling to deliver the glazing to the customer, which is when you get paid and you pay the guy commission and you pay the guy commission before you get paid, you're not going to have a business because you can have a backlog that's so big. Having already paid the commission to the sales guy, you're not delivering to the customer. You're not getting paid. Your cash flow dies. The business is going to go bankrupt. It's interesting because I, I often, in my role coaching IT businesses, quite often people then say, well, we'll pay the sales guy after we've de delivered it. And I say to salespeople, never work in a company that's going to pay you after they've delivered it because they're hiding a production problem from you. The other question I have for you is, and you can respond to that before uh, you dive into this one, but the other one is around salary transparency and whether you think salary transparency is a, is a good thing or, or not. Uh, so the first thing, you know, the, the fact that you were used the word hiding tells me a whole load of things about that, right? <laughs> so if you've got a behavior of hiding, they don't need to know right now, right? Then you've already fallen off that ability to make good decisions because not everybody's got all of the knowledge. So therefore, how can you make a good decision? So that behavior piece is about um, the environment that people are allowed to say things when they're good, bad, or indifferent. So it's all very easy for someone to say, oh, isn't it fantastic we've got that new contract? Look how much it's worth for us. It should be just as easy to say, we've got a major issue te technology-wise with our platform that we're selling over here, and I'm not sure it's a great place for us to expand that right now. Now, that message is as, if not more important to the business, but it's less easy to say if you haven't got a good environment to be able to say it. It'll be like, put off telling, putting off telling, putting off telling till we've got a solution. And then you get to a cliff and you fall over the cliff and you go, oh, why didn't you tell me we were going, heading towards the cliff? Well, we didn't need to know. Well, I'd like to have known, right? <laughs> so that hiding piece, you know, tells me a whole load of things about the structure of that organization and how they talk. But um, back to salaries, I, th I think salaries, uh, obviously, the, there's legislation now around declaring levels of salary so that we've you've got visibility and transparency to that. Um, I think there's two trains of thoughts with it. Me personally, I think it depends where you're at as an organization. I like the idea of, of total transparency because it takes another level of authenticity around how the business is operating with individuals. And that's always a good thing in my view. The downside of it, I think some of it would take some explaining to associates and you might have to do some additional non-value added work to talk it through to a groups. But my, my personal view would be, I think it's a powerful thing, but you've got to take it on the chin and it forces you to be authentic, which a lot of companies would be very uncomfortable with, I'm sure. 
and address head-on issues around fairness and transparency? You know, it could stir up a whole load of problems, but the fact those problems are there, they're hidden, right? Yeah. <laughs> they get them out and fix them. Yeah. And um, John, if you could, knowing what you know now, if you could transport yourself back in time, is there a, is there a time where you wished you'd known then what you know now? Yeah, I, I guess the things I learned about how things really work, it took gore throwing me in at the deep end, if you like, for me to get to a level of self-awareness to even think about things in a different way because it's not, it was never trained. And, and I went through Kodak as a sponsored undergraduate. I worked there for two summers and they basically threw you on every single course. If there was a space in the course, they just put you on the course, right? So I remember going on this course called um, Achieving Objectives Through Interactive Skills at Kodak. And it was basically teaching you to, to think about what you wanted to get done, who needed to make the decision and what that person needed to get from you for them to make the right choice for you. So it, it was basically a course of manipulation. <laughs> it, let me teach you how to manipulate your leader to get what you want done, right? And that just like flew above my head as a 24-year-old or whatever. But when in reality, when I, when I look at, say, how does work actually get done, then it's about a level of self-awareness and self-appraisal and critical eye on the emotional state of teams and people that is where work gets stuck or flies. It took turning up at a leadership trust conference in Ross and Y when the leadership trust used to do those. And it's called the head and heart of leadership. And it was the first experience I had of this term EQ, uh, the emotional quotient, compared to IQ, which everybody knows about level of intelligence. And what they were basically arguing is you need enough IQ, but to be really successful, you need this EQ stuff. So it's not the most brightest people in the world that are successful. It's actually the combination of intelligence, but with an emphasis on the emotional connection that they have to people that's most important. And I remember at the time I was leading the plant and I was personally struggling and I was just confused. And I couldn't understand. I couldn't articulate why I was confused. And what it turned out to be in my head once I got it straight was that I had some of that EQ piece that was recognized in others. Not I didn't recognize it myself. So if you like, I was blind to what others saw in me and that I needed to improve my own self-awareness and how I affected people both positively and negatively and to focus some time on understanding that. And I think if I, I mean, I was probably 35 when I learned that. If I'd learned that when I was 25, <laughs> I don't know what I would have done differently, but it was so powerful for me, not only at work, but in my relationships with my friends, my family, with my partner. It's that awareness of, of the impact you have that's the most powerful thing really frustrates me when people say oh that's just Jim or that's just Julie it's like well there's a choice there and I believe there's a choice and I believe there's a you know 10 millisecond 20 millisecond before you react to something you've got the choice to am I going to react the way I've always reacted or am I going to choose how I react and you know some of that is programmed in us as we grow up through our lives and uh, I remember going <laughs> This other Kodak course I went on was about 
experiments that they did in the 50s and 60s where they'd put they'd cut a hole in someone's head and they'd stimulate <laughs> right literally they would stimulate a bit of someone's brain and the person would literally relive a memory physically and emotionally of that time and they were teaching you this and, and basically what they were trying to teach you to was that you are programmed by the sum of all your experiences and if you've had a bad experience about with something whether that's uh, a person in authority or your father your your mother wherever it is that that's with you because it's programmed in and the the case is with that knowledge can you program something differently and the, and the story they told at that time was someone had this inferiority complex with large forehead bold men because their father was incredibly domineering and he had this overarching large forehead and bold and whenever that person came across someone in a power position like that they naturally went subservient because that's how they grew up with a very dominant father huh. right uh, so knowing that and then you go oh i'm feeling like this because that's my experience but i don't have to this is a different person I can choose to be different and I can reprogram. So, so all, the, all the latest knowledge around brain plasticity and its ability to re uh, learn and change and adjust, you know, when you get a bang on the head, it's suddenly a different person. Well, is it a different person or have they lost some of their traits that's been built up of that level of experience? I don't know. I'm not a brain surgeon or knowledgeable about that. But, but just being aware of, of what you can do is the most powerful thing to me. Thanks for that, John. And, and in terms of books that you've read along the way, are there are there a few books that you read that had a, an impact on you that you think others should pick up? Yeah, so I guess on that same theme is, you know, now discover your strengths. Uh, Gallup did that uh, a good few years ago now, probably 15 years ago. Yeah. Analyzed, you know, what makes great results at work and understanding the, the traits of people and understanding that. And when we went through that uh, gore again, and you, you can psychological profiling if you like you can go through a test and it comes out and says these are your themes and I learned a lot from that because you know the first theme that came out was responsibility so I naturally take responsibility for things and I go that makes so much sense right <laughs> you know as soon as I read it I'm like oh my god that's why that happens you know and I was just amazed that someone doing some research in in general human nature can be so pointed and you can see yourself in it so closely yes you make a promise keep a promise that's in your dna right yeah what else any others so the other thing i'm i'm reading at the moment actually is that, so i'm passionate about employee ownership and, and the benefit that that can give society as a whole and you know people see it as a mechanism for lots of different things the mechanism for me is that we put back responsibility and accountability to us as individuals in society that we seem to be losing more and more of over the years. So, you know, who's responsible for law and order? Well, we are, not the police. The police are responsible for checking it. Um, yeah, who's responsible for your health? You are, not the doctor. The doctor's responsible for helping you cure yourself when you're ill, but your health is your responsibility. And I think business health and business success and great workplaces should be the responsibility of you as a, a member of the team and employee ownership really can get you to that another level of, of engagement at work and responsibility and reward at work and fix some of the 
have, have, <coughs> have not differences. So I'm actually reading a book called The Eternal Business right now, which is by Chris Budd, who's um, talking about a transition of a business from ownership to employee ownership. Uh, there's lots of methodologies. I don't agree with everything that he says, but it's great that it's been published and uh, people are starting to talk about it and it's getting on the agenda a little bit more. That's great. I, I interviewed Simon Bitcliffe uh, recently on the podcast and he he transferred his business into trust. And it, from his perspective, the business is creating wealth for his employees. And that's the purpose. So, you know, it's fascinating to talk to people about that sort of well, you said earlier about giving up ego. It's that you know that this isn't about me. This is about this is about everybody else and just running a business differently. Fascinating. I'll definitely go read that. John, thank you very much indeed for your your time with me this morning. It's a pleasure. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.